Um, you might not, some of you will be like really uncomfortable, I'm sure, with how easy it is for me to see your faces today and for you to see one another's and see who's falling asleep. It won't just be me who sees who falls asleep today. Um, but uh, it was, uh, to be honest, it was set up like this as we came in. And Johnny's asking me, do you think we should do this? Do you think we should do this? We're kind of having this, like, we're having all these little chats here and there. I think as a one-off, it's great because we, it does do this kind of, like, community thing. It helps us to see how we're family and we're all together in this. Um, so, yeah. If you want to do a stew and get it out your system, right? Wave at someone, say hi across the, the aisle um, because... What we don't want it to become is a big distraction to one another. <laughs> Hats off and everything. Great. Well, if you don't know me, my name's Ian, and uh, I help lead the church here at Glasgow Grace. Uh, we're thrilled to have you here if it's your first time or um, if you're new with us. We are in 2 Samuel 9 today, and uh, before Lydia comes and reads, I'm just, I just want to remind us about a promise that was made a long time ago. In fact, I'd be so impressed if you knew anything about this promise, a promise from David to Jonathan uh, way back in 1 Samuel 20, which means that we looked at it months ago. So we're talking months back, uh, but we're all chapters back, months back, but we're also talking decades later now that we're in 2 Samuel 9 for David. Saul uh, had pushed David out. He'd hunted him down. He tried to kill him. He'd gone to war against him. And now Saul and Jonathan are, are long dead. And all of David's internal and external enemies are defeated. That's what we saw last week. There's this great victory all across Israel. And yet in this moment, David remembers a promise that he's made to Jonathan and the house of Saul. A promise in 1 Samuel 20, not to not ever cut off your kindness from my family. This is what Jonathan gets him to promise. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And he's looking about, David. And I guess he's wondering, would anyone even notice if I didn't fulfill this promise? I mean, would it really matter? They're all long gone. Nobody probably even knows about this thing. I wonder what you would do. Would you do something about this promise that you made? Would you go to the effort of seeing it fulfilled? To doing the right thing? Or would you just let it pass by? Not only does David do something about it, he actually goes way above and beyond what the promise was about in every regard. And I think what we're going to see here is really what, not just what King David does for one of Saul's house, one of Saul's family, but we're going to see what Jesus has done for you. It's like, it's like this glorious picture of what Jesus, King Jesus has come and done for you, that great son of David, the better David. So Lydia, right? There you are. Lydia's going to read 2 Samuel 9 for us. 2 Samuel 9, David and Mephibosheth. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. 
They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay, the first thing that I want us to see here in a preach that's really going to be about commitment is that we should be a people who are committed to promise keeping. We should be promise keepers. Ian and Larissa uh, were a couple who met uh, at college in the States and uh, fell in love. Beautiful story, whirlwind romance. And they got engaged, engaged in the September, planned to get married in the December. No messing about. Um, but unfortunately, not long after the engagement, Ian was in a really serious car accident in 2006. He was in a coma for a long time. And then Larissa and Ian waited four years to see how his health was going, what's happening, and um, just kind of what his life was going to look like because he had a severe brain injury. And yet, Larissa and Ian got married. Larissa had made a commitment to Ian, and she knew the implications of getting married to him, still loved him still chose to love him, and they remain married today. Like Larissa, this woman willing to keep a commitment to love, David was a man willing to make and keep commitments, promises to people. Thank you, every young woman in here saying, I bet 
where are they now? Where are they? Where are men who are willing to make and keep commitments? Not only did David make commitments, but he usually, and I say usually, because we're coming up to a passage where David really lets himself down. He usually keeps his commitments, even where there's no benefit to him. How different from the way that we normally think now about responsibilities and commitments. Commitments now are so often made for our own benefit. And even the advice that we get is, look out for number one. What's best for you? And when a a commitment doesn't jive with what we think is best for us, we are so quick to abandon those commitments. That's not what we see in the Bible. We don't just abandon them in order to do what, in a very common makes us happy. I'm not sure it makes us happy anyway. Here's um, some stats to help you see how culture has been changing recently. One in five graduates quit their first graduate role within six months in the UK. The average graduate lasts 18 months in their first job. Only 56% of UK Christian adults serve on any kind of rota in their churches. The average age of of, uh, someone's first marriage in the UK is now 31 compared to 23 in 1970. And today, more marriages break up than last. Some struggle to even attend meetings. I'll have conversations with people every so often. I'll say, are you coming along to whatever it is? And they'll say, "Um, yeah, probably. I mean, are you coming? Are you not coming? Um, I I think I might. Just so reluctant to say yes or no. And then stick to it. James 5.12 says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This promise making, this commitment kind of behavior that I think is all through scripture and actually I'm going to argue is at the heart of scripture is one way that we can track God's love for us. This here in our passage in 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 9, verse 7, is the kind of, I guess, the heart of the whole passage is 2 Samuel 9, 7. And in there, there's a word, kindness. And that word kindness really means a lot more than the kindness that we would normally think about or talk about. It's, it's really a word that in Hebrew is hesed, and it, it talks about faithfulness and deep commitment. Kindness, love, commitment, faithfulness. It's, it's rich. David's song in Psalm 33 says, in verse 22, let your hesed love, your steadfast, steadfast love, O Lord, be on, upon us, even as we hope. We place our trust and security 
in you. So that hesed love is really what carries this passage, but it's what carries David. Trusting that God will fulfill his commitments to him. Annabelle's Storybook Bible describes it as the never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. I like that. It's the love that is so clearly worked out and displayed at the cross. Most of you will know the Good Samaritan story, right? Uh, you know how it goes. There is a man who's injured at the side of the road and some passers-by ignore him until a Samaritan comes along, supposed to be an enemy, unclean, comes and helps him. And actually the word that is used is to translate show mercy to the stranger is the same word that they use in Greek to interpret hesed from the Hebrew in the Old Testament. So when Jesus says the Samaritan is the true neighbor and he says, love your enemies, and he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he is saying that this covenant love, this deep, faithful promise that God gives, this hesed love is not only one way from God, but we are now that we have received that one-way faithful love is to be lived out in our own lives. We are to embody hesed love. That means we don't just hang out with our own types. That means that we seek out those who are unlovely. Difficult, and we love them as a display of the way in which God has loved us. Love with all your hearts, with every fiber of your being, and be willing to do that when it's uncomfortable, it doesn't suit you, when it's not what you feel like doing. As followers of Jesus, we're, we're to embody this faithful love. And the very key to being able to do it is, as we see in David, he so trusts in God's love for him that he is able to love others sacrificially. He trusts him, and that means that because he trusts in God's love for him, he's secure in who he is. He's secure in his own identity as someone loved by God, beloved, beloved by God. Do you know that God would say to you, beloved? He knows you, he loves you, and you can trust in that love no matter what, in any situation. And it's only because of that that David is then able to love people in a similar way. David's convinced by God's promises to him that are unfailing, and so he can enjoy the security and strength of identity in God that means he can make and fulfill commitments. 
you're struggling to make and fulfill commitments and promises, it could be because you are not truly convinced in your heart of the commitments that God has made to you. Okay, every time we go uh, through an, a new kind of point today, we're just gonna give a few practical tips, okay? So practical tips for making uh, commitments, for being promise keepers. Begin each day by reminding yourself or being reminded by God's unfailing love and commitment to you. Practice saying yes and no based on what you believe God has called you to be about. Make regular commitments that rarely move. Date night, church on Sundays, grace community, team training, lectures that you attend. Make a habit out of calling out those wobbles that you have and work through them. Don't just bow out. Avoid giving or receiving this advice. Do what's best for you. Mostly because it's not best for you. The way of Hesed love is way better. Let his unfailing promises turn you away from this weak, self-serving, self-serving definition of love that is doing the rounds in culture and instead turn to a life of hesed, committed to being a promise keeper. So we're committed to being promise keepers. We're also committed to being lost seekers. Passage begins here with David searching for someone to show kindness to, to show hesed to. He's pursuing love like love has pursued him. Reminds me of that beautiful passage in Isaiah 40. Starts, comfort, comfort my people. He goes on to say, see the sovereign Lord comes with power, but he's not coming to punish us with that power. No. What does it say? He says, He's coming to gather the lambs in his arms and carry them close to his heart. Here's what Hesed love looks like. We don't rescue ourselves. We need a savior. We are vulnerable like lambs going astray. And we've needed God to come and grab hold of us and pull us into his heart. We don't just need a pep talk. We don't just need a how-to on self-care. We need saved from ourselves. We save from our sin and death. We wander away from the goodness of God by nature. And we need him to come and rescue us and pull us in. Luke 19.10 says, Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. He is the shepherd who leaves the 99 and seeks out the one. Do you know you're the one? Have you, have you really thought about that before? Jesus looks at you and he wants to pull you into his heart. What's the rescue you and bring you close 
If you're a committed follower of Jesus, he's already done that. He's holding you tight. And you can trust him. This is his hesed love in action. That Jesus would go to the cross for you. That he would come from heaven to earth on this rescue mission for you. That he would bleed and die so that you could be rescued from sin and death and the wrath that you deserved. And instead, enjoy this intimacy that he has brought to you with God forever. This is Hesed love. King David is committed to pursuing his enemies. Because this remember, remember, this is the house of Saul that he is going to, to try and find someone to keep this, this commitment to, that he can show kindness to, that he can love. And he wants to shower them with loving kindness. King Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And David, the only way David could do this is by being totally convinced by God's love. And like David's response to God's love and Jesus' response to the love of the Father, we respond to God finding us by going with him to search for the lost, to the broken, to the needy. That is now a part of who we are. We've been pulled in and made a part of the mission of God. We have the privilege of seeking out those who are lost, who are hungry, who are broken. We've got a training event coming up uh, two weeks today. And um, I just want to make an invite to that. It's so important that we constantly help one another to be on mission. There are so many people out there who are lost and broken. So many people who are desperate, even if they don't know it, desperately in need of the love of God. And so we're putting on this little brunch event for all of us to just be trained together, to help one another, to encourage one another, to go out there and share the good news. I know it can be tough. I know it can be intimidating. But God says that workers are few. He says, that's the problem. Jesus says, that's the problem. Do we want to be a worker? Harvest is plentiful. And workers are few. I just want to encourage you, come along, 27th, I think it's half past 10 um, on Sunday morning. Ziba, uh, this servant that uh, is identified for David to try and find someone in the house of Saul, brings Mephibosheth. Now he's introduced by the writer as son of Saul, son of Jonathan, verse 6. A reminder, he's an enemy. Don't forget, he declared war. He put a, a bounty, his family put a bounty on David's head. Yet he seeks him out and finds him. Okay, a few practical tips for how we become people who are willing to do this kind of thing. Who are willing to go out and seek the lost. 
regularly meditate on and thank God for finding you in your mess. I think if we're not convinced that we were a mess and lost in sin and needed God to come and rescue us, we needed Jesus to come and save us, then we are not going to be convinced that these people out there need Jesus. Read and familiarize yourself with passages like Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Like a gospel summary. Go there. Just camp out there maybe for a while. Set times to pray for people who are lost in your family, your friendships, your colleagues, your neighbors at regular times. Commit time to going to the lost. How guilty I often am of this one. Fill my time, fill my week, get way too ambitious with what I can do and there's no margin in there. I end up rushing around and my head is my eyes are not up to see the people that God maybe wants me to have those conversations with and to love. Ask questions like, do you mind if I pray for you? Have you ever thought about exploring faith? If God could do anything for you, what would you want it to be? And then offer to pray. Simple things like that are such great conversation starters. We assume people don't want to hear anything about it, but it's because they don't know how good and amazing Jesus is. People are lost, broken, desperate. And we have a job to do, to go out and find them. Commit to coming along to everyday evangelism in a couple of weeks. Okay, we want to be a committed uh, people. We want to be a committed people to being promise makers. We want to be a committed people to being lost seekers. And we want to be a committed people who are looking to place value on people. We want to be value placers. Mephibosheth's real name is not Mephibosheth. So the writer here is doing something. Because in 1 Chronicles 8, we find out that it's Marib Baal. So what's he doing? Well, Mephibosheth is a a deliberate reminder of how society would have looked at him because it means the one who scatters shame. Now, how David sees him and how society sees him is totally different because David has been changed by God. And so he sees him in a totally different light. This, uh, This guy, Ziba who was a servant that seeks out Mephibosheth, is actually quite a well-to-do guy. He's a, a manager, and uh, he uh, would have been what you might call middle class now, right? Maybe even upper middle class. He, whenever he's associated here in the text with David, is referring to David as lord or king, right? When the writer talks of Mephibosheth, Sitting at David's table, he calls him David. And I think that's a deliberate play. I think what's happening here is the writer wants us to see that David, King David of all of Israel, is recognizing Mephibosheth, who was once his enemy, now as his friend. That when he sits at the table with him, he looks in his eyes as an equal. Mephibosheth was, as you know, part of the house of the enemy. He, was, he put himself in self-imposed exile. And the truth is, we too have been in exile from God. 
from the king, from King Jesus, because we've been in the house of Adam, from his line, enemies of God. And that's what the apostle Paul writes to the Colossians. He says, once you were alienated from God, like Mephibosheth was in self-imposed exile, and were enemies in your minds, like Mephibosheth was in Saul's house, because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Like David welcomed Mephibosheth. So in verses 7, 10, 11, and 13, you'll see that the same thing is repeated. Mephibosheth is given a place at the table. Now this is really significant in that culture. He's given daily meals at the royal table. He sits like a son and eats with the king. It's a picture of what King Jesus has done for us. He's made us royal priests, as Hebrews calls us. And of course, that could only be done through his sacrifice for you, for us. The royal son dying on the cross that we should have received is what gives us this status as royal priests. And we can now sit round the table in the king's house and feed on his delights. So how does this apply to us now? Well, it applies to us now in that we receive from Christ and we welcome people to our tables and we're saying to people as we do that, We see you as an image bearer. We see you as an equal. We say, come into our presence and the king's presence and be welcomed. Enjoy being with us. So who is sitting at your table? Is it just your pals? It's been tricky, hasn't it, during the pandemic? But the time has come for us to open up our tables again to get people around the table of, from all different backgrounds, to look them in the eyes and give them value. There's few things as powerful or as important to have people, both from church and who are unbelievers, around your table. We uh, currently have building work going on in our house and it's been a struggle but it is something we are desperate to get back to. I honestly think that as a young church, going through this whole thing with the pandemic and all the rules that were attached to it, we have suffered from this. And so I just wanna say, if you're somebody who's been continuing to try and do this in whichever way you can, well done. And let's keep going. Let's, let's kind of, why don't we see this as like a new starting point? for us to say, look, we're gonna try and get people around our table. Now, let me remind you that you may be thinking, well, I I don't really want to do that because maybe my flat isn't clean, my house isn't clean, I'm not a good enough cook, my kids make too much noise, they're too crazy. 
My flat is too small. But you host as royalty. And it might not feel it, but in some ways, your home is palatial. It's like a palace. Hugh Jackman came to Glasgow in 2019. And this woman saw him. You know who Hugh Jackman is? The actor, right? What's he been in? Hey? Wolverine, Grace Showman. Brilliant. Very, like, famous actor, if you don't know who he is. Okay? He's in Glasgow, and he's, this woman sees him, and he's chatting to a homeless guy. Okay, guy who's been begging on the street. And uh, he gives him some money, and then he offers to take him for a meal. And the homeless guy's like, oh, sorry, mate, like, don't have the right clothes on. Don't think, you know, uh, I'm really, you know, in a, a place to go and, and have a meal. And Hugh Chapman tries to persuade him, can't, moves on. The woman comes up to him after and is like, do you know who that was? He's like, no. Hugh Jackman! He's like, a big actor, whoa! And the guy's like, whoa, no way, I didn't realize it, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, in some ways, when we invite people into our homes who don't know Jesus now, they're going to be like, well, you're just whoever, fine. One day, when Jesus returns, they will find out that you're royalty. They will. Now, that sounds weird, doesn't it? But they will. And so when you welcome people in, you welcome people in as royalty, as a member of the royal family. And you invite them around the table. I think too often we don't realize, maybe the enemy's whispering in our ears, we think that we are the inferior ones. We're not. You're a child of the king. So invite people into your home with confidence, loving confidence. Now, you might not want to say to them, hey, by the way, I'm a child of the king. Might come across a little bit weird. But in your heart, you can know that that's true so that you can confidently and lovingly invite them like Jesus has invited you around the table. Sometimes I think we get scared because we forget who we are, what our true value is. We can only place value on others as we see the value God has placed on us. Okay, practical tips. I'm going to go quick, okay. Practical tips for being a value placer. Thank God for making you his treasure. Pray God would show you image bearing, the image-bearing value of others. Pray for that. Ignore the self-improvement advice that you become like the five people most like you. Look to Jesus, become more like him, and be a community builder like him who rubs shoulders with people that nobody else wanted to. Pray for and take opportunities to invite people into your home. Not sure about dinner? That's okay. Don't need to start with that. Why don't you start with a cup of tea? Or when I come around and watch the football or whatever it is. Show your interest in others by asking them questions. Look into their eyes. Help them to see that they are valued. Listen well. We want to be promise keepers, lost seekers, value placers. And we want to be generous givers. In Scotland, we need to fight for our own leaning towards being mean with our money and instead 
uh, with our possessions and our finances embrace generosity. David's generosity is extraordinary here. It's extraordinary. He goes way above and beyond the promises he'd made to Jonathan in all kinds of ways. And here he, we see that he actually gives all of Saul's land back to Mephibosheth. All the land belonging to the house of Saul, verse 7. This beautiful family estate, fertile land, a few miles north of Jerusalem. And not only that, but he then gives him this seat at the table. Every single day he can come and eat and enjoy being at the table. Just like King David generously shares the land with Mephibosheth, King Jesus came generously sharing the kingdom of God with us. With Jesus, the kingdom of God breaks out. It isn't just limited to land. It's much more than that. And of course, it's more than that here in the Old Testament too, but it's even more, much more than what we see here. With Jesus, the kingdom of God breaks out by him coming. And when he comes, the kingdom of God is, he says, in our midst, it's near. We're to receive it, become citizens of it, who spread the kingdom. This is why the Bible is full, and I mean full, of texts on generosity and giving. So all through the Old Testament law, it's full of instruction about tithes, it's full of instruction about property and offerings. Uh, the prophets speak repeatedly about God's people to uh, be generous and sacrificial. Jesus talks about generosity and finance more than just about any other subject. And after the church is born in the book of Acts, we see several stories of extraordinary, extravagant giving, which are usually then signs of changed lives. And then the letters to the churches, we see these reminders to remember the poor, instructions to support people in full-time ministry, and the importance of giving. Generosity is so important because it reflects our heart. Jesus said that, didn't he? Where your treasure is, your heart is also. It trusts in God's limitless supply because the one who owns all of it, he, I mean, he owns it all anyway, right? So when you give away, you're actually, you're giving away something that is already his. And when you give away, you're not just giving it away and it's lost forever, you're actually sowing it into the kingdom. And so you can trust that it will multiply. It believes that all things are his and that he is a supplier. Uh, David says one of the Psalms, every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle in a thousand hills. I know every bird on, in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that is in it. Of course, that is God saying that. And not only does he own it all, but he gives himself for us and wraps us up into the heart of the plan of all creation. So as Paul writes to the Ephesian believers, we have been given all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms and been chosen according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. What is he saying? He's saying that we are getting wrapped up in the kingdom. Right? All of it is his. 
He gives it, gives himself generously, and then he gives us his kingdom generously. And so now we are called to be generous too. You, you could chart generosity from Genesis to Revelation and be able to explain something of the gospel. For us to generously give away our finances, our time and our resources, we are never really losing anything. Not really. We're merely sowing it in the most reliable investment there is, the kingdom of God. It's reliable not because it will make us rich. Okay, let me be really clear. This is not prosperity gospel, all right? But because we can trust God to provide and multiply what we give for his good. As kingdom people, we are called to contribute cheerfully and generously to the expenses of church ministry, to the relief of the poor, for the advancement of the gospel to our neighbors and nations. Okay, practical tips on this one, and then we'll wrap up. Avoid saying, I'll give more generously when, when we've got our mortgage in place, we've done all our saving, when I'm not a student anymore and I've got a real job, when will never come, because that is a heart issue. We should be generous givers and practicing generosity because it will, it will stand you in good stead as you go. So even if you're a student right now, can I encourage you, give, because that will stand you in such good stead for the next phase of life and the next phase of life and the next phase of life and you will receive the blessing that comes with giving. Trust God and give to the church. I would say start with 10%, but aim for generosity. So the New Testament is clear. It's not about this kind of 10% rule, okay? The tithe thing isn't, in my mind, isn't, for today, but I think what what the uh, the kind of sentiment is is look if you start with ten percent that's a pretty good start. In other words, what the New Testament is saying is that was all good. Now be even more generous. So I think look start with that. It's a good principle. It's not a rule, but it's a good principle, and then see where you go from there. Exercise generosity in everyday life. Pay for people, other people's things. Particularly if you might not have chosen to spend money on it. Out for dinner with someone, they buy some like extravagant cocktail or something. Pay for it. It's fine. It's good for your heart. Give away your best. Grace community, confession for you here, okay? Um, I had some really good coffee. Sorry, guys really good coffee and you guys came around for Grace Community and there was something in my heart that didn't want to give it away. I'm so sorry. I realized, ah, that was an exercise to be generous. That was a moment where I could practice being generous. Take these little moments when you're like, oh, I want to hold on to that. Practice generosity. Remind yourself that nothing is really yours. You are stewarding possessions and bank accounts for God. And give generously through both planning, like direct debits, 
I think that's really useful. It's a bit like putting rhythms in place for your quiet times or whatever. But also do things and give generously in one-off opportunities because that will help you in your heart to not just kind of separate it out, but have other moments where you can say, right, oh no, here's an opportunity where I can like, I can give here and, and be generous here. And it's just good for your heart. And I'm gonna wrap us up by giving us an opportunity now for a one-off. And that is with Ukraine. Ukraine. 